Okay, 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 enough already. I'll talk about Bitcoin. After just three episodes of my new podcast, more than a few of you have emailed me, texted me, posted on social media, LinkedIn, and perhaps scrawled on a bathroom wall or three, all with the same request. Enough about GameStop, Tesla, or housing affordability. Would you please talk about Bitcoin? Well, with that, I'd like to wish you all a good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it happens to be when you're listening in. I'm Eric Sussman, and glad to be with you once again for this episode of Focus on Facts to talk to you about, yes, Bitcoin. Now, I have to admit that the mere fact that so many people are so extraordinarily eager for me to talk about this one particular topic makes me inherently uneasy, and my first inclination was not to do it. It's the natural contrarian and cynic in me. As Warren Buffett says, be fearful when people are greedy and greedy when people are fearful. So color me a bit fearful because with Bitcoin, it seems like people might be getting a little bit, well, greedy. After all, Bitcoin raced past a trillion dollars in total value this past weekend, surging above $55,000 a coin before falling back to under $47,000 a coin on Monday. And now it's back above, wait a sec, let me check, over $49,000 a coin, which just about sums up much of the Bitcoin story. It's ridiculous volatility that can make your head or Coinbase account spin. Since reaching that $55,000 high over the weekend, it fell about 15% in just a few days and has bounced from there, but Then again, keep in mind that Bitcoin was trading for around $7,000 a coin at the beginning of 2020, so it has really been on an amazing run. Not surprisingly, these sorts of moves have attracted a wide range of folks interested in it, from speculators to investors, both retail and institutional, to regulators. Certain billionaire fund managers and companies like Overstock, MicroStrategy, and most recently Tesla have started buying in. But with what in mind exactly, or based on what is hard to say? More on this later. So I realize the topic is just too large to ignore, and so I'm giving in, and will provide my views about Bitcoin, what it is, what I think about it, its future as a currency, and whether it makes any sense for investors to own it. But before we get too far, I'd like to take a really quick dip into my, you guessed it, hot tub time machine, and back to May 22nd of 2010, where we get to meet poor Laszlo Hanyaks, who made the first real-world transaction involving Bitcoin to buy two pizzas in Jacksonville, Florida, for 10,000 of them. Yep, 10,000 Bitcoin for a couple of pizzas, an amount that today would be worth, I hope you're sitting down, more than $480 million dollars. The good news is that the pizza was double stuffed and had all the toppings. Well, I really don't know that for a fact, but I definitely hope so. Believe it or not, May 22nd is now celebrated by some as Bitcoin Pizza Day, although I doubt Mr. Hanyux does much celebrating on it. Okay, before we get too far, I think we should talk a bit about what Bitcoin is, though I imagine that more than a few of you out there know this all too well, but Having been a teacher for quite some time, I have long ago learned that it's best not to make assumptions in that regard. So what is Bitcoin exactly? A commodity, a form of currency, a bartering instrument, a software program, the modern version of the 17th century tulip, 
a combination of some or all of the above. In simplest terms, Bitcoin is a digital currency launched in January of 2009 and an instrument that facilitates online exchanges and transactions, mimics currency, but without the need of a bank or financial intermediary to guarantee the exchange. Stop and think for a second as to what happens when you whip out some good old U.S. currency to pay for something. It's a piece of paper, and you and the merchant or whomever you are dealing with on the other side of the transaction understand that the number printed on the front and back is its value. A Benjamin Franklin, $100. George Washington, a buck. And Andrew Jackson, soon perhaps to be joined by Harriet Tubman, $20. But what backs it? I mean, what gives this piece of paper its value? Well, the full faith and credit of Uncle Sam and our Federal Reserve, of course. Of course, the bills also say, in God we trust, which may add a little extra dose of confidence for all parties involved, but it's really just Uncle Sam. So let's face it, its value comes from our collective confidence that the U.S. government will stand behind the currency and is able to do so. But what if you want to do business with someone overseas who does not accept U.S. dollars? Well, you could convert your U.S. dollars into whatever local currency the vendor or merchant requires and pay them accordingly, but that's a pain, and none of us loves converting currency when we travel, especially with those high transaction costs. You could use your credit card, but again, if they only use their local currency, your credit card may and likely will charge you a fee for the conversion from U.S. dollars to that local currency, and if they don't charge you, they're going to charge the vendor. So maybe Bitcoin was contemplated to be a bit like Esperanto. Now, for many of you, you have no idea what the heck Esperanto is, but it was at one point posited as a universal language, so we could all speak a single unified language. Well, we know that didn't happen as planned, and like it or not, English has become a universal language of sorts. Thus, Bitcoin as a digital currency could become that universal currency, but as we shall discuss, I think it will prove very much like Esperanto. Interesting in concept, but not ultimately accepted universally, if widely at all. Therefore, as we will discuss, it's my view that Bitcoin is mostly a speculative instrument, perhaps a combination of all those things I mentioned above, a commodity, a currency, a bartering instrument, and yes, the 21st century version of the 17th century tulip. Okay, so how does it work exactly? Well, here's the part where we can get bogged down in technical complexity, but broadly speaking, Bitcoin consists of two primary things. The first is a process referred to as mining, which does not involve digging into the earth in search of these precious coins, but the computer equivalent, where computers must run algorithms to solve complex mathematical puzzles. And in the process of solving these puzzles or problems, the miner is awarded bitcoins. As we will discuss later, it takes tremendous computing power and energy to mine these bitcoins from their software caverns or blocks. As it turns out, there is a maximum number of bitcoins that can ever be created, and that is 21 million, which will have been mined by 2040. There are about 19 million bitcoins out there today, and something like six and a quarter coins are created every 10 minutes. Approximately 4.5 million of the total number of outstanding Bitcoins are actually in circulation. Many are not, simply because people are holding on to and storing them, not actually selling them at all. Sort of like our discussion of passive index funds and 
ETFs and stocks, if you remember our GameStop story. In fact, not to get off track, but the relatively modest float of Bitcoins available for sale may in part be contributing to its extreme volatility, again, like what we discussed with respect to GameStop. Anyhow, the second critical part of Bitcoin is really the storage feature referred to as the blockchain. With traditional currencies, a central bank creates the currencies with financial intermediaries maintaining records as to who owns what. These intermediaries create some protections and security, of course, just think about FDIC-insured bank accounts, for example. Anonymity is not an option. Your bank knows who you are, where you live, and how much money you have in your accounts. Oh, and they also have your social security number or taxpayer ID. Regulations aplenty are to be found. Blockchain is something else altogether, based on a peer-to-peer network creating a distributed ledger. There is no central administrator who creates the currency. Transactions may be made directly between parties without going through a financial institution, unlike a check or a credit card transaction. I suppose the closest analogy would be to imagine a vacuum tube running from your house to anywhere else in the globe, and you could send money to anyone, and they welcomed your U.S. dollars and your physical currency. You could send the money very quickly anywhere around the world. At this point, let's step back for a moment and think about what a currency is, what it does and offers us, and then think about Bitcoin within this framework. One, a unit of measure. Clearly, currencies provide us with a unit of measure, whether it's income we are supposed to receive or get, or how much something costs. But stop and think for a second, even those of you who are big Bitcoin aficionados. I imagine most of you still think about things, income and expenses, in terms of dollars or euros or your local currency. When you're at Costco, one of my very favorite places in the world, and yes, I am an executive member for the record, I doubt any of us thinks for one nanosecond about the cost of items there in terms of Bitcoins. Meanwhile, the price of Bitcoin is so volatile, as we discussed, it becomes problematic as a unit of measure. When the value of a single Bitcoin goes from $3,000 a coin to $20,000, back down to $5,000, then up to $55,000 in a matter of a couple of years, it is simply way too volatile to be any reliable unit of measure in absolute or relative terms. Perhaps a little more history will provide color on this point. The price per Bitcoin passed $2,000 in the spring of 2017 and then hit almost $20,000 by the end of that year. But then, a year later, it was trading for about $3,300 a coin, a 76% drop from the previous year and a 15-month low. And then, since spring of last year, not soon after the start of COVID and on the heels of extraordinary fiscal and monetary stimulus, wowza, the price of Bitcoin has been on, on an almost upwards and continual tear with just a few fits and starts. In November of 2020, Bitcoin reached a new all-time high of $19,850 and change. In January of this year, it hit a new high of more than $34,800. And on February 16th, it passed $50,000 before hitting $55,000 per coin this past weekend. So here we are. I think I need a drink after all that and maybe a towel as I exit our uh, dip from the hot tub time machine. But 
Until that day when regular consumers, all of us really, begin to think about everyday transactions in terms of Bitcoin, it really cannot serve as a unit of measure. In addition, its extraordinary volatility precludes it from being so. Two, a means of exchange. Stop and think for a moment and consider each and every transaction you engaged in during the last few days. A trip to the grocery store, Costco, I just like saying Costco, a purchase from Amazon or some other online vendor. Maybe you made an even larger purchase, a used car from Carvana. How did you pay? If you wanted to pay in Bitcoins, was that even an option? Now put yourself in the shoes of the vendor. How can they possibly accept Bitcoins when the price is so volatile? How can they manage profit margins? It sort of reminds me of Brazil, where I have had the great fortune of teaching several courses, when they had their super hyperinflation in the early 1990s, when monthly, yes, monthly price changes exceeded 70%. Prices were changing so rapidly and inflation was so rampant that grocery stores and other merchants had employees whose full-time jobs were to go around the stores and reprice goods every single hour. Keep in mind this was before scanners and barcodes when every product had one of those little small stickers on it. Now imagine that situation today with Bitcoin. Elon Musk recently announced that he plans to start letting people pay for Teslas in Bitcoin. I think that may sound all well and good, but hugely problematic. On a car with, say, a 15% gross profit margin, if a customer pays in Bitcoin, that margin will likely move all over the place in a matter of no time at all. On the day I wrote this episode, Bitcoin was down 11% in one day. So how can Elon Musk, as a fiduciary and steward of capital, accept Bitcoin without making sure the company is completely hedged? Selling cars at a 15% gross margin is tough enough, but at 4%, that will lead to serious financial problems and distress, to say the least. Now, some of you will say, oh, come on, Professor Sussman, get with the program in the modern times. Haven't you heard of a digital wallet? Cash and credit cards are so analog and so boring. Wait a second. Are you trying to tell me that we have somehow entered a new digital age strictly because of Bitcoin? There is nothing new about digital wallets. Apple Pay, PayPal, along with Visa and MasterCard and their brethren have all introduced digital wallets. And my experience is that processing transactions with Apple Pay is super easy, quick and efficient. Now, by admission, I have not used Bitcoin myself, but I have to believe that using Apple Pay is no less burdensome or quick than using Bitcoin. So the whole argument that Bitcoin is somehow more efficient rings hollow to me, if also because of its ridiculously high energy costs. Mining Bitcoins consumes something like 18 terawatt hours of electricity each year at an estimated cost of a billion dollars, excluding hardware costs. So that alone belies its claimed efficiency. I also can't help but consider the profound irony tied to Tesla's recent purchase of a billion and a half dollars worth of Bitcoin for a firm whose mission is to reduce our carbon footprint and accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles. I do find Elon Musk's affinity for Bitcoin to be a bit ironic or contradictory. Meanwhile, we already have fiat currencies and means of processing payments that are low cost, 
efficient, and secure. Consider what happens if you somehow forget or lose the passkey that unlocks your bitcoins. To put it in the academic and wonkish verbiage I love to use, you are pretty much hosed. There is no tech support or reset your password button to help you. This problem alone creates a serious and significant impediment to Bitcoin being used as a widespread means of exchange. Oh, and one last data point that might contradict Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. Let's take a look at BitPay, perhaps the leading cryptocurrency merchant processor based out of the United States since the early days of Bitcoin. It was formed in around 2011 or so. The total dollar volume of transactions processed by BitPay has not moved all that much since 2017, about a billion dollars a year. While the data is hard to come by, it looks like actual transactions using Bitcoin have been relatively flat in the last several years. It's been mostly about the buying and selling of Bitcoin themselves via various exchanges, as opposed to its actual use in the purchase or sale of goods and services. This is consistent with data from Coinmetrics and Forbes, which determined that most Bitcoins are sold by folks who have owned them for less than 30 days. And data from as recent as 2018 indicates that only three of the top 500 top U.S. online merchants accept Bitcoins. There is one segment of transactions which may be perfect for Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies, illicit or illegal transactions. I really enjoyed the book American Kingpin, the story of the Silk Road and its founder, Ross Ulbricht, and Bitcoin's role in its rise, which made perfect sense with the transactional anonymity that Bitcoins or cryptocurrencies can provide. And lastly, three, a store of value. This may get a little wonkish, but think of gold for a moment or any other physical commodity, silver, copper, platinum, natural gas, crude oil, soybeans, or thinking back on one of my all-time favorite movies, which I know may not be politically correct anymore, but Trading Places and Orange Juice Concentrate. All of these physical commodities have their defined uses. Some have been used as currencies because of their relative scarcity. Modern currencies, mostly referred to as fiat currencies, the US dollar, the euro, the Japanese yen, have stores of value simply because they are deemed as such and widely accepted as legal tender for exchange in their countries of origin. Peckett even says that right on the face of our currency. Now, cash may erode in value because of inflation, but inflation is modest at present, and Bitcoin's volatility makes it far more iffy as some store of value. Others argue that Bitcoin is a store of value because there is a limit on how many Bitcoins that can ever be mined or created, that 21 million figure I quoted earlier. But this argument that Bitcoin is valuable because of its relative scarcity confuses me. First off, many things are rare, like my big toe. So that alone cannot be the basis of value, as much as I believe my big toe is invaluable, for the record. And two, there are many other cryptocurrencies, Ethereum, Litecoin, Dogecoin, all of which use the same underlying blockchain technology. As a result, I see Bitcoin as perhaps the American Eagle or Canadian Maple Leaf of gold coins, just a different and more widely known version of the same underlying commodity. Others will argue that the deficit spending and tremendous growth in U.S. government debt, coupled with low interest rate policy, means that the U.S. dollar will 
inevitably weaken. Inflation will rise, and so one must protect the value of cash in some meaningful way, thus buy Bitcoin. I disagree for a couple of reasons. One, Bitcoin pays no interest or dividends, of course. And two, gold has historically proved an effective hedge in inflationary times and can be acquired without actually having to take possessions of coins, ingots, or gold bars. In fact, at this point, maybe we should take one more brief trip in history to the 1870s, when much of the world was actually on a gold standard, where currency was essentially something that could be convertible into gold at some fixed price. Under this system, exchange rates between countries were fixed, and if exchange rates rose above or fell below that fixed rate, at least as much as the cost of shipping gold between countries, gold inflows or outflows took place until rates returned to the official level. The period during which much of the developed world was on a full gold standard was short, lasting only from the 1870s to the start of World War I, which saw a switch back to traditional paper currency. By 1928, however, the gold standard had been reestablished, though because of the relative scarcity of gold, most nations adopted a gold exchange standard in which they supplemented their central bank gold reserves with currencies, U.S. dollars and British pounds, that were convertible into gold at a stable rate of exchange. The gold exchange standard collapsed again during the Great Depression of the 1930s, never to reappear. Well, just like the gold standard proved impractical and went the way of the dodo bird, I cannot fathom a world in which Bitcoin is the single currency or some sort of monetary standard, at least as I see it. Then how do we even begin to think about its value? How does one value a cryptocurrency exactly? Honestly, this is another reason I hesitated doing this particular podcast, because I just don't know. To quote Warren Buffett again, price is what you pay, value is what you get. And as many of you know or can appreciate, in those courses where I teach valuation, we focus on things that generate cash or cash flow, at least in some reasonably predictable and measurable way, whether it's a stock, a bond, or a piece of real estate. But cryptocurrencies don't exactly fit any of those traditional frameworks. Candidly, I have seen some absurd approaches saying, well, you take the overall value of a fiat currency, say the US dollar, divide that total value by the total number of Bitcoins that are either currently in circulation or that 21 million coin maximum. Take A divided by B and voila, Bitcoin is worth more than a gazillion dollars a coin. This sort of cockamamie approach reminds me of that common valuation approach one often sees in business plans for this, that, or the other. Look, if we can just capture 1% of the TAM, the total addressable or available market, we will sell this many units and be worth this much. Look, I'm all for back-of-the-envelope approaches, but these sort of simplistic valuation methods are just non-starters in my book. Other approaches are to estimate the total value of gold out there, which is something like $2.7 trillion, and do the same sort of simple math. But Bitcoin's collective value is already around a trillion dollars, and, of course, it is far more volatile. Look, the bottom line is that nobody really knows. What is clear is that Bitcoin backers are more than passionate and have an almost evangelical fervor. To some, you just keep buying no matter what the price is, but that reminds me of 1929 and a gentleman you likely have never heard of before, Irving Fisher, who was a renowned 
actually a celebrity economist at that time who stated at or near the peak of the stock market mania in the roaring 20s that share prices had reached a, quote, permanently high plateau from which they could only go higher. Oops, permanent plateau meet October 1929. Perhaps some of you will remember Henry Blodgett, the Merrill Lynch analyst and Wall Street's loudest cheerleader for internet stocks back in 1999. I believe his top recommendations fell something like 80% in less than two years. Ouch. Some say institutions are starting to take hold of Bitcoin, but I think these stories are mostly exaggerations, like rumors of Mark Twain's demise. Sure, Tesla bought a billion and a half dollars worth of Bitcoin, and other folks are entering the shallow end of the pool. But the frenzy and interest seems mostly driven by retail investors trading momentum or wealthy individuals who have capital looking for destinations for it. It's now become another mispriced asset in an excessively liquid market. So do I ever think Bitcoin will become what its advocates and proponents claim? Well, maybe. I, I can't say no unequivocally because it's possible that the United States, EU, UK, Japan, and China could collapse or become so profoundly unstable that Bitcoin becomes another fiat or fiat-like currency. But I just don't see it. For the following five reasons. One, it's volatility we've already discussed. Two, we already have easy, secure, and efficient means of transacting digitally across the globe. The security risk associated with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is real, including the loss of password keys or hacking. Last July, there was a large data breach involving a popular French-based Bitcoin and cryptocurrency hardware wallet called Ledger which exposed and published the personal information of some 270,000 Bitcoin and cryptocurrency users. Some of you may be familiar with the big heist involving Mt. Gox, a Japan-based Bitcoin exchange which was hacked in 2014 with 850,000 customer Bitcoin stolen. Banks and other traditional, perhaps boring, financial institutions add greater security and protection for consumers and merchants alike. Three, we are likely to see a lot of increased regulation surrounding all cryptocurrencies this year and next. In fact, I already started working on my 2020 taxes and noted that on the face of the Form 1040, the form that most of us use to file our federal taxes, the IRS asks whether, quote, at any time during 2020 did you receive, sell, send, exchange, or otherwise acquire any financial interest in virtual currency. So the IRS is watching. The U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission, FINRA, the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and the North American Securities Administration Association have all issued customer advisories or investor alerts about Bitcoin. Clearly, technology and all that it offers, including cryptocurrencies, are outpacing regulars' ability or wherewithal to manage them. But History tells us that will change in time. Four, there is a huge social cost associated with cryptocurrency mining in terms of energy use, as I mentioned earlier. I have read estimates that the energy consumption to fuel Bitcoin is equivalent to the consumption of just under 2 million average U.S. households each year. And finally, competition. It's Economics 101 that profits or excessive rents brings competition and not only have companies like Facebook expressed interest in launching their own digital currencies, but so have central banks. 
and the latter would be a very formidable competitor, to say the least. Perhaps not surprisingly, China is the front-runner in this regard, but the ECB, the European Central Bank, is not far behind. So in my opinion, Bitcoin is a purely speculative, if not an admittedly very captivating play, but it isn't some sort of strategic asset that should be part of investor portfolios. Look, I give all the credit in the world to Satoshi Nakamoto, the inventor of Bitcoin, whoever they might be, for their sheer genius in creating it. And it may be fun to trade. Lord knows, buying something at $5,000 and seeing it rise to $50,000 lickety split is exciting. But so is getting blackjack or being at that really hot craps table when the crowd is gathering and cheering and the drinks are flowing on a great night in Vegas. Amazingly good and memorable times, but what happens in Vegas should perhaps stay there. And with that, I wish you all a very good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it happens to be when you are tuning in. I am grateful for your support, and I hope to reconnect with you soon with another episode of Focus on Facts.